The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, big welcome, everyone. Glad you made it. And especially those who are coming to the center for the first time. So, it's great that people are willing to come see what it's about. And uh, it seems amazing in a way that the Buddhist teachings and, you know, all the different institutions that exist, that so much would be, would come together around the practices of being present. It seems like it shouldn't be such a big deal. And, it, you know, that's really seems to be the case when we just ask people, including ourselves, like, are you present, Mark? You know, the instinct is to say, to want to say, yes, I'm present, I'm awake, I'm here and now, right? Can you imagine people interviewing people on the street and them saying, no, I'm totally lost, caught up in my thoughts? (laughs) And it's because that's the normal, like being lost in thought is what we take to be human, you know, like that's the state of our humanness is to be lost or caught up in our thinking about this and that. And so I say that because uh, those who weren't here last week, I started a series of talks on renunciation and uh, always warn us that, you know, we might have some reaction just hearing that word, like we have to give up what we want, what we like. But as the Buddha says in in a famous passage, you know, a wise person is happy to let go of a lesser happiness in order to realize a greater happiness. This is just life, right? You know, when we were kids, we were into whatever we were into, but... It's probably not going to get a, get us excited as adults, whatever made us happy back then, because now we have more important things that make us happy, like good wine or <laughs> whatever it might be. And the important thing is, uh, it was homework for last week for those who weren't here, right? We were supposed to go home <clears throat> and see if we can notice just the ordinary experiences of gratification, getting what we want whenever you get what you want. You know, I think I was talking about corn on the cob. I I went out to the retreat center this week, and there's a great, out in the country, you get really fresh sweet corn, and it was great. I had it last couple days. And I was talking about that last week, like, being, you know, a Minnesotan, this is sort of a treat this time of year is to get some sweet corn. And, uh, but we tend not to, strangely, be interested in the experience of gratification. Excuse me, I have lots of ideas that there's a me who loves sweet corn, you know, and looks forward to it. But in that moment, when you get it all done and the butter's there and the salt and pepper or whatever you do to your sweet corn and you're eating it, and so you're gratifying that desire. 
have you, do you remember being actually authentically interested in those moments? Oh, so this is what it's like to gratify desire. This is that experience of gratification. And any other, of course, that's just one tiny example of gratification. But to really have an honest, clear sense of what it is to gratify desire. And this is our homework. And then the second part of our homework is to get just as interested in that deep and pure sense of what are the what is the drawback of being the person who wants sweet corn when it's fresh in the last half of August? What is the drawback of being that person and having that, being identified with that desire, taking that desire personally, having that, in a sense, it's like a promise. When August rolls around again and sweet corn is available, you know, you'll get some and you'll be the person who gets some and you'll be that person who eats some. And so that's like a load that my mind carries all the time, one of many loads, right? So what's the drawback of having that load? Now, when we do have preferences that we're identified with, is there any cost to being that person who has preferences? I really don't want so-and-so to be elected to, I mean, you just name your office, you know, that some politician is running for, however your, whatever your inclinations might be, political inclinations might be. You know, so we have a strong preference that the mind is identified with. What's it like to hold that? Doesn't mean, I'm not talking about having an opinion or being able to discriminate between someone you think would do a good job versus somebody you think would do not such a good job. But I mean like that attachment to desire. Like, no, no, I really, I'll be happy if they win. I won't be happy. So that's a burden in our heart. Have we taken the time to get a clear, honest, immediate sense? What's it like to have attachments to our desires? And then, is there any way out from this dynamic of the pleasure of gratification and the weight of attachment? Is there another way? And in, in the text, they call that escape or you know, being released from the entanglement of our fixation on gratification and our willingness to bear the burden of being attached. So here's like one traditional text from the suttas, from the discourses way back 2,600 years ago, evidently. So the Buddha says, O practitioners, I set out seeking the gratification in the world, in the world of experience. Whatever gratification there is in the world that I have found, I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the gratification in the world extends. You know, I really tasted it. I haven't held back. I've checked it out. <laughs> Which is, that's what I was saying. That's our homework. And then he says, right, we want to match the Buddha's investigation. I set out seeking the danger, the drawback 
in the world of sense experience. Whatever danger, whatever drawback there is in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom how far the danger in the world of sense experience extends. I know it. I set out seeking an escape, release from this world of attachment to sense experience. Whatever escape there is from the world of sense experience, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the escape from the world extends. And then the, in another discourse, you know, the Buddha, in, you know, over the course of those 45 years of him teaching in northern India, 2,600 years ago, he talked about awakening in different ways. But this is one of the ways he talked about awakening. He said, basically, uh, if I did not directly know as they really are the gratification in the world as gratification, the danger as danger, the escape from the world as escape, for so long I did not claim to be awakened. But once I really understood what gratification is, what the drawbacks of attachment are, what freedom from that, the mind being dependent on gratification and caught in the burden of these attachments to sense experience. When I really understood those three things, when I did my homework, then, only then did I claim that this heart is free. Free of what? Free of the entanglements that come when we're identified with sense experience. And it's really important, like, as we hear this, and even I put myself in this boat, you know, as a, a long-time practitioner, you know, and a Dharma teacher, somebody who teaches, tries to teach what the Buddha was pointing to, you know, my mind is still entangled with sense experience. But I have moments, right, and maybe a lot of you in the room have moments where there's some real balance clarity where we see that the mind, we see the impulse or the tendency of our mind to be entangled in sense experience. And that's where we get to study gratification and the drawbacks. And in those moments when we're a human being, right, of course, still have our preferences, still know the difference between pleasurable and unpleasant experience. So we're not like oblivious to what it is to be sensitive, but somehow we're not spellbound. You know, we see our friend with a new, and you can just imagine whatever you might want, your friend has, right? And you're not confused by that experience. You're aware that there'd be gratification if you got what they have, because you want it, and you're aware of the drawback of identifying with the desire to have it. So it doesn't mean you don't have desire for it, because you recognize it would be gratification if I had that new cell phone or that new car or that. I was, uh, when and I took a three-day vacation up at the South Shore and I saw one of those new, I don't know if you've seen one, Rivian, I think they're pronounced, uh, electric cars. They, have, they make a, a really cool-looking pickup. And being conditioned, 
as a, a male in America, you know, my mind has been infected <laughs> by, ever since I had my first Tonka toy, Tonka truck, some of you know, it's like, a, they make trucks for little boys and girls and, and uh, the they, thems of the world. Anybody who wants them, they're there. I don't know if they still make those trucks, but, um, but it, you know, that cultural conditioning. So I saw this really cool looking, and just as the person was coming out of the store, so we had this conversation about how cool <laughs> this truck is, and it is cool <laughs> on that level. And it's just like, you know, uh, uh, with a mind that has done some practice, we can go back and forth, right? Where we're the one who really feels, embodies that sense, I would be happy having this, I would be happier having this than not having it. You know, forget the $75,000 or whatever, <laughs> plus maybe a three-year waiting list for them, <clears throat> and then, you know, where do you get it, where do you take it to get prepared, and all of the other, or where do you plug it in, even, <clears throat> for those of us without a garage. But, uh, but just that, that study of, oh, this is what it feels like to need this in order to be happy. Like how limiting that experience is when the mind is identified with sense desire. And then in the next moment, there could be just this, it's like that mudita we chanted earlier in the program, you know, that appreciative joy or gladness. It's like how nice it is that engineers build cars, you know, a vehicle like this that's so, you know, nimble and able to do what we need cars to do, and how nice it is that this person could afford it, you know, and that there are nice things in the world that work, you know, or whatever. We can just appreciate it and maybe even appreciate that person's happiness. Not oblivious that they also have the drawback that comes with being identified with sense experience and sense desire. And it's not this scolding thing. We want to be interested. So whether we're in the experience of gratification or in the experience of wanting something, that's the drawback, right? Embodying that somebody who would be happier if I had something, whatever that is. Well, let's be honest with ourselves. Well, what's that like to be this somebody who isn't gratified because I don't have it yet. So I'm the one who imagines that I'll be gratified, so that means I'm the one who's not yet gratified. Well, what's that experience like? The one who's anticipating lunch or anticipating retirement or anticipating vacation, anticipating the new purchase or whatever it might be. The kids growing up and being happy adults and <laughs> you've got your life back. <laughs> All those things that we naturally can get identified with. So it's not about a scolding, oh, I shouldn't be identified. No, when we are identified with our sense desires, then be the Buddha, or the Buddha before he became a Buddha, he was the one who got interested in the drawback. And so what makes somebody a wise person is they've done their homework. They've studied gratification, they studied drawback, and they just studied those moments where our mind, our heart, doesn't feel entangled with our sense desires. 
And again, it's not about, I mean, we do get a little taste of it just when every sense desire has been quenched. You know, we had a nice massage and our favorite beverage and we had a good wholesome day and no regrets. And then there's a little bit of that non-entanglement with sense experience because we're sated. We're, we got it, we feel like we've gotten everything we've wanted. You know, it doesn't last long, we know that, right? But in moments, that equanimity, that's an equanimity that's arising because of the specific uh, circumstances that we've experienced, gives us this temporary flavor of a mind that isn't entangled with craving, right? So we can get a sense of that. Like, it feels really nice, doesn't it? When everything has been just the way we like it, and we have that nice kind of buzz. Oh, and it, what the Buddha would ask us to do is like, oh, this mind doesn't have a lot of craving right now. This, it's, this is what it's like when the mind isn't obsessed and tangled with craving. It feels really good because what that does for the mind, it kind of nudges the mind. I'm wondering if this kind of peace, the peace of non-craving, the mind not grasping after anything, I'm wondering if this peace might be available even when I am hungry or even when I do see things I want or want to get rid of. That's the equanimity of awakening, where we're in the world, like we may be in the world and we may not have much, like the, you know, the traditional state of a monk or a nun, a Buddhist monk or a nun, is they have very few possessions. They have a few robes that they wrap around their body, they have a bowl to put the food in, because they can't store food, they have to receive food from lay people every day, and can't keep anything overnight, they usually have something to clean their teeth, you know, and a few other things. I mean, in the traditional mode, at least, very few possessions. Even their place that they stay is given to them. And traditionally, they wouldn't stay there very long. They might stay there a few weeks during the rainy time of year. But after, you know, staying someplace for a few days or whatever, then they would wander to another place. And that way they wouldn't be too much of a burden in the local families that were feeding them every day. This is the traditional, things have changed over the centuries, of course, but that was sort of the traditional model that the Buddha had for the nuns and the monks. So just that uh, sense of non-dependence and when uh, really nice things flow our way, just like even at the time of the Buddha, sometimes really wealthy people would offer meals for the nuns and the monks. They wouldn't say, oh, no, 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 we're Buddhist monks and nuns, we can't have nice food. No, they would say, sure, we'll, we'll show up in the morning and receive the meal, and they'd get an amazing meal. And then another time, you know, they might be in a village where there's not much wealth, and or there's just a drought or something like that. And they would just get the little bits of food that the lay people are able to share with them. And then they'd, that's how it is now. It's like this. 
And so just even as an aspiration, we don't have to be afraid when we're receiving nice things because that can happen without causing harm to others. And that's an interesting place of investigation, as you can imagine. But we're not afraid of comfort. And we're not afraid of, you know, uh, impoverishment or a lack. Because we're training the mind to find a happiness that's not about sense experience. Now, are you interested? I mean, that, that, that was sort of the point last week. Can we be interested? This is the third part of the homework. Like, can we be interested in a happiness that's not tied to sense experience? Getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. And there's something like, just in the sitting form, this is why we have, we really encourage people in your own situation, you know, in a way that makes sense, to sit every day. Because when we put ourselves down on a chair, on the cushion, on the floor, and we sit for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever you can afford, time you can afford, and we stay put, it's a huge renunciation. Like, we become the person, I'm not the person who's going to go pee. I'm not the person who's going to scratch that itch. I'm not the person, like, sometimes I'll forget to shut the door to the basement when I, where I sit at home, and I'll have to hear the dehumidifier in the basement buzzing the whole set. And I could get up, but it's like, no, you know, today I'm the person who's hearing the sound. I'm renouncing being the person. Now, if you had thought about it, Mark, before you sat, that would have been fine to be the person who doesn't have to hear that sound. But you didn't. And part of it is, I'm realizing the person who's not afraid to hear that sound for 30 or 45 minutes or 60 minutes, depending on how long I'm sitting. Right? I'm, I'm training in being the person who can feel that sensation in my knee or notice the mind racing about some detail that's you know, alive in my mind that hasn't been resolved, some worry or hope, fear, or whatever it might be. We become the person who is going to relate to all of the wildness of our physical sensations, all of the wildness of our emotions and our mental activity. We're exploring the possibility of non-dependence on what's moving. And when we sit, I'm sure you've noticed, there's a lot moving. So it doesn't matter if you come to a peaceful place like Common Ground Meditation Center or you've got a peaceful place at home to practice. There's a lot moving when we sit down. It's body sensations, sounds, sights, thoughts, reaction to the thoughts, emotions. I think it's a whole cacophony, uh, a whole catastrophe. <laughs> That's uh, John Kabat-Zinn. Some of you know he's quite well known now because he started a number of decades ago, this mindfulness-based stress reduction at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it became a famous center. Now it's moved to Brown University. Um, But anyway, uh, when he described his course that he formed for the patients that the doctors didn't know what to do with, it started mostly with people with chronic 
conditions, chronic pain, and they would send them to John Kabat-Zinn's uh, program there at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center to learn basically this practice that we do here in a more secular, you know, language in a more secular way, but really the same practice. And um, he, when he described that in a book, he wrote a book, he called it Full Catastrophe Living, I think it's called, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, for somebody trying to sell a mindfulness-based stress reduction program, that's a provocative title. But it, it, there's some deep honesty in him using that for the title of his book because it's sort of, I, some of you know, I joke a lot like we should have a warning sign when you walk into the, a Dharma center like Common Ground that, oh, yeah, come on in, but realize you're going to be cultivating a sensitivity, <clears throat> a more honest sensitivity to the catastrophe of what's moving. Thoughts are moving, emotions are moving, sensations, sounds and sights, smells and tastes, to some degree, are moving. And it's a catastrophe because one of the first uh, deepenings is that nobody's in control. And yet there's this deep habit that somebody should be in control, i.e. me. And it breaks our heart to see the catastrophe and to see the, um, it's like waiting for Godot or some of those existential <laughs> stories about this, uh, like what a setup it is that we live and breathe this catastrophe, which is our lives singularly and together in our communities. And we have this wrong idea that I can get it all under control. Or then we switch, we can flip to this other wrong idea, I gotta get the hell out of here. <laughs> and that's kind of what the Buddha would describe as dukkha, this flipping between I gotta get this all under my control, or when we feel beaten up by that ideology, then we flip to I gotta get the hell out of here because this is a setup. Life is a setup. And every subset of life, you know, being identified this way, being identified this way, having this sort of background or lived experience or this hope or this dream, everything is a setup. Even like, okay, I got it figured, I'll be a minimalist, you know, and I'm going to just have a little. I'm going to live in just the place where no one will bother me that too is a catastrophe. You know, all you have to do is ask those people. That's why there are so many tiny houses for sale. People have lived in them for a while. The people who really, Femi and I talk about this sometimes. By the way, Femi's going to come back in a few weeks on Saturday, uh, the 30th of September, and uh, teach on this subject. He's going to teach a uh, a yoga and meditation class in the morning on Saturday, the 30th of September, and then in the afternoon do a workshop in uh, a similar topic. So we'll get some information on that. We're just kind of getting it together now and get it out to you all. But, uh, you know, the reason why there are these tiny houses and little cabins and all these, because 
we think it's going to make me happy. And then we realize it's just like everything else. It's a catastrophe. And I'm not saying there are better catastrophes than other catastrophes. There are definitely better catastrophes than other catastrophes. But this was... This is sort of the short version of the Buddha studying gratification, drawbacks, and escape, right? The reason there's the third module, right, the third course on studying what is the escape is to realize there's no end. This dynamic between the drawback and the the pleasure of gratification, it doesn't actually lead anywhere. And it's like whatever we might aspire to in terms of worldly experience, you know, the, whatever that person or you might be if you had just perfect good fortune to have whatever you thought you wanted. You know, you could interview people like that and just see, are they done? Do they have that, that beautiful radiant equanimity or is their heart really at peace? Because if not, then we we get interested in, well, what is the way off of this wheel? You know, the wheel of samsara. Some of you know that word, that word the wheel of suffering, of the heart being squeezed because of this possibility. This is a potent quote from the Buddha. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, a person aims at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both. And they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, a person aims neither at their own ruin nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And, their and they experience no mental pain and grief. This is nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, comprehensible to the wise. Right? So this word nibbana, it's all about something that flipping back and forth that I talked about, right? The chasing after what we think will make us happy. It's the ceasing of that. It's the cessation of craving. That's another way the Buddha talked about it. So, you know, nibbana, awakening, freedom, the release, the heart's sure release, unshakable release, right? This is the experience of this heart, the immediate human experience of this heart, free of grasping. I like that. That's one of the best definitions um, I think of freedom in this, uh, in the terms of the Buddhist teachings and practices. We're interested in this heart in any moment, right? Because the freedom, the release, isn't about having ideal conditions, because that would be a limited happiness. So even when we have that taste of freedom because the conditions are really nice, just the way we like them, we already know, I, I need these conditions not to change. And even if they don't change, we get bored with them. 
So it's a temporary thing and we sort of know it, which ruins it for us actually. That's why even the so-called perfect conditions aren't really gonna do it for us because we can't make them last and knowing that we want them to last ruins it. Haven't we had that experience where it's really nice? Like this happens even in meditation where we have a really nice sit and we have a lot of calm, a lot of peacefulness. And we know because we're being mindful, we're aware that it's calm and we're aware that eventually my body's going to hurt and I'm going to have to move. And then I'll lose the samadhi, the concentration that came because of the particular conditions of sitting still, coming back to the present moment, developing some momentum of present moment awareness, and the world, the entanglements falling away. But that samadhi initially is dependent on all those conditions lining up just the right way. That's why it doesn't happen every time we sit. Right? It's nice when it happens. It's useful when it happens because it makes us more sensitive and it makes us get interested in what is the escape so I'm not dependent on a good set to feel really peaceful. Yeah, if you don't have anything else, having a really peaceful meditation is a good medicine, better than getting a good massage, better than a lot of those other things we go to when we want to settle down and feel good. So the Buddha was really into being able to sit well and to access deeper states of concentration. But he understood that it's limited because those deeper states are dependent on sense experience, like no loud trucks driving by or no obnoxious people poking at you, asking, like, hey, you look like you're really in a deep meditation. Tell me what it's like. <laughs> Because that's what happens. I was, when I was sitting in Burma, uh, the meditation hall where we were all sitting, it's really hot this time of year especially. And uh, it's all screened. It's like 15 feet of screens. You sit up on a little platform right next to the screen. All the other monks and other practitioners are just sitting along the perimeter of this big room. And buses would come in from the city to watch the monks and practitioners sit. So you'd be sitting there, and there'd be like three people just two feet away, three feet away, watching you sit. <laughs> I mean, not all the time, but, you know, every day there would be some vans of people coming because the place I was, you know, was sort of well-known, the, the Sayadaw, the main monk, was well-known, so people would come out there for the day. It was sort of like a way of making merit and uh, just come watch you. And But... Remember, we're practicing to not be dependent on conditions, like a peace, a release. This heart, this mind, the way this humanness right here, but this humanness minus any conviction that my well-being, that well-being is dependent on anything. And for us now, just intellectually having that, letting that thought in, that well-being, your well-being, real well-being, isn't dependent on your life being different. Like some people in the room online now maybe have a, are in the middle of a health crisis, 
or a financial crisis or a relationship crisis or a medical crisis like what Cora's been going through these last six, eight, six weeks or so. I mean, really life-altering stuff happens to people all the time. And, uh, and it can seem sort of too much or even inappropriate to wonder, is there a well-being, a peace, that isn't dependent on which way this situation I'm in the middle of plays out? Or whether it's all hell breaks loose or deep healing and coming back into a nice situation in our lives. Can you sense how much freedom that is? Not afraid of death, not afraid of life continuing. I know some people now who are quite old, and it's like, you know, they're not necessarily interested in taking their own lives, but they're not interested in their life continuing necessarily. And it's just sort of interesting. It's like we get to this place like, oh, no, I I don't want to die. And then we get to another place where it's like, when is it going to happen? It's not easy being an old person and having a body that's breaking down and just having to manage all of the indignities that come with that older age. But to understand, like to, and to hold this aspiration for escape, this is really what renunciation is about. It's not a lesser happiness. It's a very resonant release, an unshakable release, precisely because it's not dependent on anything. Can you sense, I mean, even on that more obvious or common level of contentedness, contentment with the way it already is. You know, it doesn't mean that having a nicer kitchen at home or you know, whatever we might have wouldn't be nice, but why not be content with the clothes we're wearing instead of eyeing, you know, the clothes that somebody else is wearing and thinking, oh, that would be nice. It's like, oh yeah, I can be content. Or content with the body that we're feeling now as opposed to imagining this body in better shape or a more youthful body or whatever we might want to imagine. But just to really sense that possibility of non-craving, a moment of non-craving, so that we're interested in it, just like we have to get interested in gratification and the drawback of our attachments, we really have to get interested in this more subtle thing that we call release or escape or nirvana, which is, it sounds like highfalutin, nirvana, it's a Sanskrit, and Nibbana is the Pali version of that word. And it just is the cessation of grasping, the cessation of craving. There's no greed, there's no active greed, hatred, and delusion that the mind is identified with in this moment. What's that experience? And you know, with this sort of thing, if we're not interested, we're not going to see it. So it's like a little chicken and egg, like if you don't hear it, like you're hearing it now, these teachings from the Buddha that I'm talking about today, if you don't hear about Nibbana, if you don't hear about escape, you're not going to be interested. If you're not interested, you're not going to notice this possibility in your own mind. 
you have to be interested. So initially you're gonna take it on an intellectual level and then you gotta use the concept of this heart not entangled with craving. And you gotta look for it then. You use those words, that idea, to kind of illuminate your own experience with interest. What do I know about this experience of this heart, mind, not entangled with craving? And uh, we'll have small groups for anybody who wants to stay now, but before we do that, I just wanna let people know, usually at the end of the month, I say a word or two about how the center operates now 30 years in, right? We started in 1993. And in all these years, right from the beginning, we decided to really invest in this circle of dana or generosity. And so we don't talk about money and it's really a way of living in all of your relationships, but the practice place is in your relationship with Common Ground, with these teachings, with this community, this building, this Zoom room, our retreat center. And that relationship is one of learning how to receive everything you receive as a free gift. It's a practice. You actually have to practice sensing the gratitude, the appreciation has been given to you because of everything that people have done previously. So you receive it as a free gift. And then when you feel like giving back, you know, it will be different for each person because some people don't have any time to volunteer. Some people don't have any money to donate but there's always a way to be in that circle of giving and receiving that feels enlivening for you. So when you walk away, you don't feel anything left over. It feels really like a good relationship, a wholesome relationship. So just explore what that feels like and looks like. And you know, like any you know, relatively small nonprofit, I guess, we have our paid office staff, we support the teachers, we have this building in Minneapolis and the retreat center out in Western Wisconsin that the community built and no debt. And it happens because, you know, there's this circle about 400,000 comes in and about 400,000 gets spent every year. And it just happens because people listen to their heart and they find their own way to receive in a way that makes you happy and to give in a way that makes you happy. And we don't put out suggested donations and we don't do fundraising. We just invite people into this practice. And just let us know if you have any questions about that. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.